Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. It's time for the imbalance history of rock and roll. Ray Coob, along with my partner in crime. Marcus Goldman, what's going on? We always go on a learning experience. True. But this is going to be a little bit more like real class, like going to school. First off, let's welcome our sponsors. As always, Boldfoot Socks. Oh, Marcus, I got a story. Marisa wants to tell us a story about her Boldfoot Socks. And also Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. We have a guest today, and I guess you could say he is the rock and roll doctor, at least in our sphere, because Dr. Rob Brush is our guest on The Imbalance History. Hey, fellas. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. I've been a fan of the podcast for a while now and uh, can't wait to uh, contribute. We actually met through LinkedIn. So if anybody doesn't think people can network, <laughs> they're wrong because we that's how we met, right? That is. It's like, I guess that's the old school social media for me at least. And speaking of old school, we discovered that we have a mutual friend who I went to high school with and you worked with when you were at the University of the Arts for many years, my dear friend, Ron Kerber. Great saxophone player, like yeah, incredible teacher, motivator. He kind of does it all. And he recently retired from UArts, and, uh, but he's still out there playing and just has this great passion for music. Well, let's talk about you arts and your time there you spent a lot of time at that school vaunted school for arts and music and film and all kinds of things how long have you been at temple university so i'm going into my fourth year at temple but if i back up for a second uh i got my start in in college education at uh, rowan but i actually attended rowan before it was rowan it was glassboro state college wow you know what you mentioned that when we were talking before so you went to glassboro and then taught at Rowan. That, if you know the Jersey area, that's pretty cool. You crossed I, a couple of lines there. I have a classical percussion degree from there. And then um, I went to work in Atlantic City and started playing the showrooms, percussion and drums. That, that was back in the day that uh, Atlantic City, you know, all the casinos were coming up and it was a mad dash wow. for Philadelphia musicians to go down there and start to work. And then I went to Boston, I went to Berkeley for a year and I was able to study with some really great drummers. So I was up there studying with Alan Dawson and Gary Chafee and just all these like really legendary teachers. And then um, I came back, Rowan hired me. And then fortunately I moved over to UArts and I was there for 21 years. And 18 of those, I ran the drum set department there. And we just had just great faculty, great student base. And uh, among us in Temple, we were like, I I would say, the big performance schools in Philadelphia. So for those of you not familiar with Philadelphia, he went from about a mile south of City Hall on Broad Street to about a mile and a half, two miles north of City Hall on Broad Street. Also, 
a place where you've been able to expand what you do. Let's talk about that. Right. So, so as far as rock history goes, uh, right. uh, UArts didn't have a rock history course in place, and I had suggested it uh, numerous times, and then they finally decided, yeah, let's do that. So then I just started from scratch, um, preparing lectures and looking at the literature out there and you know I really wasn't overwhelmed with a lot of the textbooks that were out there and I'm not saying I, I saw all of them but the few that I did see you know drawing from my own experiences and then decided uh, at some point I was going to write a rock history textbook of my own and fortunately UArts was very generous with grant money we had some big faculty meetings about it. it turned out to be a really nice collaborative process too because UArts one of the strengths of the school was it's the actually actually it's the biggest art school in the whole country in terms of the diversity of its majors so graphic design dance wow. musical theater you know you name it i was able to access some of the really talented students or faculty in terms of illustrations so instead of having pictures of rock stars hey let's create a a like like an iconic character call him Rockman. And and the first chapter, he's like in a wife beater t-shirt playing in the garage <laughs> to symbolize, here's the start of rock and roll. So that's cool. So now he, he actually, um, in a very mysterious way, kind of looks like certain um, certain rock stars when we, when we dress him up. Um, so he can look like a punk rocker. He could look like a country rock guy sitting on the porch. Um, with his banjo, he could he could look like a beetle if we dress him up that way. But he actually looks like Alan Holdsworth, <laughs> just by mistake. Wow. You know, like, like wow, that's the illustrator doesn't even know who Alan Holdsworth is, but he kind of looks like that. So anyway, the, the whole concept of the book was just really about the musician's perspective. In fact, that's in the title, Rock History, The Musician's Perspective, because I wanted to come from the viewpoint of an actual musician that understands the nuts and bolts and therefore isn't just, let's say, regurgitating all the history and the, and the dates and things that, that have to be there. They all have to be there, all those things. But can we get a little bit more under the hood and investigate, you know, why is, why is Jimmy Page using a violin bow? You know, why is Keith Richards um, changing the tuning on his guitar to create Start Me Up? Genius, why? Rob. It's genius. <laughs> I mean, like those kind of things, you know, like get, yeah. get inside, like what really makes the music tick. And therefore, like when you're teaching a class of musicians, they can relate to it a lot more. And then so the book is is used at Rutgers. Um, I've used it at Temple, obviously at UArts, a few other schools, a few high schools. It's gotten into, and then eventually it led me to offer some of my own courses. He's Rob Brosh, the rock and roll doctor with us here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, currently teaching all kinds of stuff to all kinds of music fans and people and musicians at Temple University, one of the fine universities here in Philadelphia. We have so many. Uh, you're lucky to have been able to make a three-mile move between yeah. gigs, really, when you yeah. think about yeah. it. Absolutely. These are the kind of things that not every teacher gets to do, writing books about this stuff. I know a lot of professors write books about their subject matter, but this is a book that could teach people beyond your class. And I guess that's the reason it's interesting to people or might be something people would be interested in buying or finding. Where, by the way, can they purchase your book? Yeah, thanks for asking. So the, the, the textbook 
is a monster. It's really, really huge <laughs> endeavor. It, you know, because it's going to start really with the the pre roots of rock and roll. There's a, the, that first chapter with the wife beater guy playing on there. You know, it it, it kind of says, look, before there's rock and roll, there's got to be something else. So, what are the four ingredients that really make early rock and roll? And in my view, it's it's obviously the blues, number one. But it's also going to be country music. It's going to be folk music, and it's going to be gospel music. So it starts with that, and then progresses through virtually every style and genre. But、um, that is a big pill to swallow for a lot of people. So I have a retail version of the book that would be more appropriate for a lot of people, and that's just called Classic Rock History. And that really begins with the Beatles. So when you think about classic rock and you hear what's on the radio, unfortunately, you don't hear enough Elvis or Little Richard. Or Chuck Berry or Fats Domino. You don't hear it at all anymore. Very much not at, at all. all. Yeah. Even the oldie stations don't do it. They're playing stuff from the eighties now. Well,、oh、let's、God. do some time stamping, guys. Because、yes. when you think about it, the music、yeah. of the fifties, which was originally oldies, is now sixty plus years old. True. Yeah. yeah. That's the reality.、That's, But by European standards, that's、day. young. <laughs> so. It's It's frightening, man. Like to realize that Green Day is like thirty years old. I know they're twenty-five. Yeah, they're played on classic rock stations because they're twenty-five years old, and that's the time cutoff for radio to be considered classic rock. As yeah, he holds the quotes, I didn't.、Up. I didn't really know that. Is that sort of like a thing you discovered, Marcus? On like just. From checking it out, just being in the business, it's something、yeah. that we learned how the programmers decide their form or choose formula. Ray, at one point, they decided that it had to be at least twenty-five years old to get on a classic rock station. Now that number and the parameters always change. When you started applying the twenty-five year thing to that, and you were into the early '90s stuff, that's when a lot of classic rock stations had to take a serious look at what they were doing and what they were reflecting. And that's when they began to play the bands from Seattle and all the other artists of the early '90s. Absolutely incredible. You know, I got the, I got the Rock Doc name from just from students that started calling me、um, the Rock Doc in the in, in my classes because I do have a doctorate in music, and so they just said, "Hey, the Rock Doc, let's ask him this or that." I take throwing the word doctor around seriously, man. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Respect. So, so I put up a website called Rock Doc Music Courses, and I spelled R O C K D O C Music Courses dot com. So、um, if somebody goes there, they can check out my monthly blog. I think I have Tom Petty up there this month, but I had just done four consecutive months of Led Zeppelin to promote my my Rock Doc Mini Led Zeppelin course. And so they could go on that site, and then the, the,、uh, with a few links,、um, a few clicks, the book is available. As are the、uh, the courses that I offer as well. I just wanted to be able to offer some courses, just like the retail book for people that are outside of the university setting that just want to take a course. People that just love Led Zeppelin or early classic rock or whatever the next course I'm going to do is. It's just great to have people that want to be there,、mm -hmm. as opposed to some college students that are like, "Well, you know, I got to take an elective. I like music a little more than art. I'll take this." And then you're you're asking them who Keith Richards is, and you see one hand go up. You go, "Oh my God, we got some work to do here." Oh wow. <laughs> The parents should be explaining who these people are because even if they don't listen to the Stones and the Zeppelins and the Doors, etc., a lot they still had it as part of their musical upbringing. That should be an ethical rule of parenting. I you agree. You must. 
you must teach this. If you not, if you don't, you're negligent in, in a big way. I agree. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not calling Dyfus, but I agree 110. <laughs> the reason you wrote your textbook, you said, is because the textbooks out there were really bad. So you had to go out and research and yeah. find information on your own. Were you pulling up old microfiche and old microfilm yes. news stories uh -huh. from way back in the day? And were you reading like old biographies and autobios to pull this information? Yeah, all, all of the above. I mean, and I don't want to be negative. I mean, I'm sure there's some some other good books out there, and I've and I've gleaned some things from some other texts. But but my overall sentiment was just like a lot of the people writing it are just really out of touch. Um, you can just tell they're not rock and rollers at heart, you know, like there's just not that that element there. Um, there are so many subjective decisions that go into this. Uh, and let me put it this way. If we have the big iconic bands like Zeppelin, like the Stones, like the Who, they're going to be in there, of course. And you're going to give them more, let's say, um, space, more share. And so then I would say, OK, if you're a big boy like that, um, you're going to get a groundbreaking album because you probably have broken ground if you're that big of a boy. So in this case, maybe it's the debut album of Led Zeppelin. And, and, and I always get um, criticized for calling it Led Zeppelin 1 by the purists. You can't call it that. It's, it's the debut album. Well, can um, we talk but... about that for a quick second? Because we're dealing with a lot of purist bullshit lately um, yeah. on a lot of artists, fronts, and in a lot of levels. You know, it's the first record, kids. So that's why people might call it Led Zeppelin yeah, 1. Yeah. If you say Led Zeppelin, well, yeah, you have to... to say the eponymous debut album every time you speak of it. Yeah, man, especially with Zeppelin where they like they refuse to name the albums until Houses of the Holy. Like that's the fifth record. Right. So like, and and there's a lot of reasons for that. It's Jimmy Page versus the world, and the music critics, and and and, and Ahmet Erdogan, and, and the record label Atlantic. There's all of those factors in place there. So anyway, you make all these decisions, right? So now, hey, um, maybe I can do a profile on Jimmy Page and really get into like what makes him tick. And then and then what about Plant? And then, okay, well, John Bonham. Okay, maybe I gotta put one in there for John Paul Jones. Break down each individual player to see how they contribute in an individual way with their musicianship, their composing skills, their ability to arrange and orchestrate, all those factors before we're even talking about a band. If you did a sentence or two about everybody, then you would just be like a Wikipedia collection. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But, but you still have to like acknowledge like all these people that are part of it, even maybe even the one hit wonders too. So it really took me about five, six, seven years to research and then about three years to write and then like another year to edit and then editing down to a retail book, cutting it by a third, man, that's the hardest thing of all. Well, how do right. I do that? I can't leave this out or that. And it's, it's agonizing when you start taking things away. It sounds like both the planning and execution like a podcast. It really does. Because <laughs> we run into that all the time when you find a good story and it doesn't quite jive with everything and you cut something out and you go, man, I don't really want to take that out. Editing is one of those things that we're, we're familiar with every day and with what we do. Right, Marcus? Absolutely. <laughs> I know something that leads you to teaching this Led Zeppelin course. Tell us about your indoctrination, Dr. Rob, with Led Zeppelin. Because okay. I didn't get one of these. Okay, yeah, man. I, <laughs> so when I started playing drums around age 13, you know, it was a typical Beatles-esque 
kind of approach and uh, Stones right. and, and, and Zeppelin too. And uh, although Bonham was harder to play uh, drums to than the Stones, when I was graduating high school, and I'm and I'm I'm going to reveal my my uh, my age through this. This was like 1977, and I got the best graduation present you could ever get, which was a ticket to a live Zeppelin show. And this was 1977, Madison Square Garden. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, I had to do that. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and I had never even been to New York before, so I come up out of Penn Station and I'm looking at the skyscrapers and stuff. It was I was pretty overwhelmed. But um, I had a decent seat. It wasn't like up front, but it wasn't a nosebleeder. And um, I had been to, you know, a lot of shows uh, at that point because I was really into progressive rock. And that, that's, that was really like my wheelhouse as a drummer. Every Yes, every Genesis, every Jethro Tull show that came through the spectrum. Right, and right. sometimes the Garden. I was at that show. Um, I was the weird guy in, in, behind the band way up there. And said, what's that guy doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm watching the drummer. Right, I'm trying to see all four limbs. We were a lot of the same shows then, I'll tell you that. Yeah, we were. But but Zeppelin was just a whole other thing. So the anticipation, you could feel it, the energy. When they came out, Plant came out first. And he had his typical tight jeans, his like open shirt. He had a dove in uh, one right. hand and a bottle of wine, right? <laughs> and he's just out there by himself for, for a little bit. And he like goes to the front of the stage and he raises his arms and he turns his back and he plays with his hair on the back of his neck. And I've never heard anything as deafening for as long. It just never let up. I saw Sean Cassidy in concert and him shaking his ass, I can guarantee you, was as loud as what the hell you heard at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> so the energy, man. So, so. So Paige comes out and it's just the two of them for a minute. And then it's kind of dark in the back. You know, unlike now where you can you can look and see, oh, the Dead and Company, they played this on the last show and they played that two shows ago and they're due to play this. You didn't know any of that. But what I did learn was that they were opening with either rock and roll or song remains the same. And it was just like brute force. Like they attacked the audience. They they were coming for you. There's no other way for me to describe it. And it was just like they, the audience is feeding off of them as much as they are the audience. And it's, it was just extraordinary, the energy. Remarkable. This was um, towards the end for them. I think Robert's son, Carrick, died during that tour. And they canceled the third leg on. We've covered a lot of that on the podcast yeah. and uh, folks can go find, you can just go to our website, by the way, Yeah. type in Led Zeppelin and all those episodes that we've done with different stories about them without anything really will pop right up wow. uh, at imbalancehistory.com. So that was your first Zeppelin show and last, right? Yeah, that was the last 77, 77. I wow. got, got it in there under the, under the wire. You know what I mean? But right. it was transformative for me. And, and, and I still think about it even when I was developing like the book and these courses and, and stuff like that. Because, you know, like when you go back and you look at what they used to open with in the very beginning, it's a tune called We're Gonna Groove.
you might be familiar with it, but most most Zeppelin fans aren't. Let's establish control here. You know what I mean? Like they would just come right. out with that kind of authority, and um, sadly, it ends up on Coda on the on the on the very last album. It's not really a Zeppelin album in my view. It's like outtakes and like what what Page could scrape together with a musical Coda for them. And they yeah. aptly titled it. Yeah. I thought aptly titled. Yeah. It sounds like they couldn't do that song the justice they wanted to in the studio, even though they captured that magic live. How do you capture this stuff in the studio? That, like, like Bonzo's mantra, right? Same thing, kind of. Yeah. And that's like a great solo. And then Paige comes in and figures out some ways to add some some parts and some, yeah, some electronic sounds yeah. and do some things like that. But, you know, but when I when I put the course together, um, I, I really tried to break Zeppelin down into like, let's say, four parts, four eras. The first one would really be, what are these guys doing before they're Zeppelin? What's their musical background? And then that's going to lead us into the Yardbirds with with, with Jimmy Page's, well, I'll call it flirtation with, with playing live. Because as you guys know, he's a studio musician. He's known as Little Jimmy because there's actually a big Jimmy uh, working the studios in London. And he's getting an unbelievable education in what it's mm-hmm. like to record and just play behind people. And same thing with John Paul Jones. So they meet because they're just two working musicians. And, um, you know, Jones's uh, background is, is equally impressive in terms of the arrangements he's done and, and the tracks he's played bass on. We learn about that stuff all the time. Every now and then you'll see John Paul Jones credit on stuff when we're researching. You just never know where he's going to show up. How do people sign up for the Led Zeppelin class? Okay, so it's a four-week course. And again, they can go to my website, Rock Doc Music Courses. That's pluralcourses.com. And right on the site, there are clickable links that, is, that are going to bring you right to the landing page of the course site. It's powered through Thinkific, which is an online platform for education courses. And right there, they can either sign up for a free trial to check it out, which they can do in like a, an hour or two, or they can go right for the course. And for the listeners here, if they type in Zeppelin Rocks, Zeppelin Rocks, they're, they're going to get a, um, a coupon discount of 25 bucks off, and it brings the course to like 99 bucks. It's pretty oh, cool. So it's Led Zeppelin for 25 bucks a week. It's Thanks, cool. Rock Doc. Right yeah. on. And so it's an open enrollment, so they can sign up and work through it anytime. But I'm also doing ensembles at various locations. I'm doing one in Mount Laurel where my studio is, a Zeppelin ensemble. So people that want to play the music can also sign up for the course and come live, take an hour of, of class and then an hour of rehearsal. And we do that for about six weeks and then we find a venue to go out and play. Cool. So it's really- Players gotta play, Rob. Players gotta play. <laughs> and so, you know, the kids that are in there are like, oh, this is really different. Like, but hey, man, you don't know the music. You don't know the history. So we got to inform you. And then the adults that do it are, are really li- liking that a lot because, you know, they already know a lot and they, and they want to learn more. We're going to take a quick break, refresh with a pint from Crooked Eye, change our bold foot socks, and continue our chat with The Rock Doc about Led Zeppelin and his Led Zeppelin class.
You know, Marcus, when Marisa got back from her power walk the other day, she started doing a testimonial for Boldfoot Socks, so I told her, hold on, and I sat her down and had her record it. Hey, Marisa, tell us all about your Boldfoot Socks. You know how much I love to go out on that 5.30 a.m. power walk, and I'm usually coming home sweating and dripping wet from head to toe. But since I bought my Boldfoot Socks, that isn't true anymore, at least not for my toes. After any workout or one of my long walks, I take off my shoes, I take off my socks, and I can't believe how dry my feet are. Even my socks aren't really that wet. These are the bold foot socks that I'm telling you about. Uh, They're so comfortable that I barely feel them on my feet when I'm walking or exercising. Every time you put on these socks, there's two words in capital letters that have so much meaning. You see the words, be bold. What that means to me is that if I'm going to go out for that walk, that jog, to the gym, wherever I'm going, it gives me a message that I can give it my best shot, that I can be empowered. I know it sounds crazy. It's just a pair of socks, but that's what it does for me. And they also wick the sweat away. That's Boldfoot Socks at boldfoot.com. Check them out and be bold. Thirst. It's a need, Marcus. You need to satisfy a real thirst. And what a better way than with a nice, fresh craft beer at Crooked Eye in the heart of Hatboro. And my vinyl night is moving to its permanent home the second Tuesday of the month. Come and see us. Bring your vinyl if you want, or I'll bring mine. You can't forget that Friday nights from 4 to 11, there's live music over at Crooked Eye and open mic night the first, third, and fifth Mondays of the month. First, third, fifth. I can't do math when I'm drinking at Crooked Eye. Well, the brews are cold, and they're always fresh, always the favorites, and something new on the board there at the brewery location in Hapro. And the big news is the opening of the Crooked Eye Kitchen with Salty Vets Barbecue. Oh, yeah. All the good stuff, and we'll be telling you more about them. Serving the cure for what ails you since 2014, we thank them for their support. Of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. We're back on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll podcast, Ray Coob and Marcus Goldman, with our guest, the rock doc, Dr. Rob Brosh from Temple University. And uh, he's been telling us about what's going on in his world, both at Temple and in the rock doc spinning universe, like with the courses and stuff. It really is an opportunity for people to go and explore and figure out maybe there's a course that they want to take that you're starting to offer. There's uh, a lot of younger people who are looking to learn learn more about rock history and music history and the proof i found recently in that dr brosh the response to stranger things 4 when it came to music in those shows 
Uh, most notably, of course, uh, Kate Bush, who recently got a check for a couple million from the streaming mm-hmm. services for that. Metallica, of course, mm-hmm. music being used as a weapon against evil. There's a Journey thing in there and a couple others, a police song in there. So all these songs are getting kisses from people who were not only not born, but that their parents might not have been born or have been in like grade <laughs> school or junior high school when these songs came out. That's about the uh, timestamp that really puts it in perspective. But these songs have had this resurgence, and it's led to an interest in learning more about old music, if that makes sense. And what are you seeing on that? Well, you know, I'm loving that because I, you know, I play in a band called Loose Cannon, and um, my, my nephew's a great singer, and um, he's in that band as well. And so the, um, the the people that book us are always saying, yeah, you know, you guys can do a solid set of The Police uh, we do we do we do a set of the dead, but we don't want to get you guys labeled as a Grateful Dead cover band. Right. But we could do a set of Hendrix and all, like all this stuff and mixing in some U2 and some, you know, one off tunes. But like, hey, we got to learn some killers, some Coldplay, some Kings of Leon. And so when I see uh, a Stranger Things like and a police song gets gets some notoriety. I'm loving that because it sort of validates playing that music more and just brings it to people. And um, and Zeppelin's no different, man. I, I find that, like, for some reason, Zeppelin just resonates um, with younger kids more than, like, maybe the Stones or, or the Dead. What we found, and you probably have too since we're about the same age, it's yeah. the same with the Doors. Every few years, a bunch of 16, 18-year-olds all latch onto the Doors, or there's a movie or something that gets their attention, an anniversary or something. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely true with Zeppelin. Hey, I spent a decade and a half every night playing a block of Zeppelin on the radio, and I did wow. my Get the Let Out thing, right? Yeah. So you get into all the nooks and crannies from my head, even if they weren't all getting played on the air. You learn a lot, but there's always so much more to learn. And that's one of the reasons why we think People want to hear from you, Dr. Rob. Yeah, so so future courses that I want to do, I really want to do a Grateful Dead one. I want to, and I want to do a Stones one. But I'm thinking like what I'm probably going to do first is a grunge course because again, it's going to resonate with so many kids. And I don't want to make it Nirvana, um, just just Nirvana. I want to make it a little bit wider so we can put Pearl Jam and Soundgarden there. We could be guest professors. We really could. Oh, man, let's do it. I mean, absolutely. And then, you know, just to back up into like Mud Honey and Green River and Tad. We were there. and, And I'm actually getting ready to go visit my aunt in Seattle and do some research at the same time, like the last time I went out there, this is kind of funny. I, I, um, I, I tried to go to Sub Pop, you know, the, the famous label. And I thought that there was going to be sort of like a like a sub pop sort of museum or store or something like that. And I knock on the door and it's like a working office. It's like, what the hell are you doing here? You know, it's like so it's still a, it's still a label. It's still a thing. It's still there. But you guys have been out to Seattle and the record stores mm-hmm. are amazing and the fanzines. You can collect some of those. Oh, yeah. And, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm thinking like grunge is going to be the next thing. You should reach out to Mark Arm before you head out there from Mud Honey because he's very, I think, press friendly and he loves to talk about this stuff. Really? These guys were from there before it was there, before it was a thing, you know, and a lot of them still are there. A lot of them still live there. The ones who never really made it out, a uh, part of what we call the Seattle Center. For a long time, Seattle had a self-defeating scene. They'd make and break bands all the time. People would just come and go and change bands. I need a bass player, leave this band. And and it was all this revolving stuff that never got anybody anywhere for a long time. 
like, like, what's Cobain listening to, you know, as, as a kid, as he's bouncing around pretty much homeless from couch to couch? Including he's, including King Buzzo's couch from the Melvins, mm-hmm. who we adore. Right, yeah. absolutely. Right, so he's listening to a lot of punk, but he's listening to a lot of metal. And then he kind of discovers, like, a lot of people that they, they share similar traits, similar audiences. And and I think the essence of him, not, not, not to turn it into a, a Nirvana session here, but the essence for him, for me, is, like, there's that pure Beatles-esque melodic sensibility that he has that he was deathly afraid of being exposed as a Beatle fan. And so how do we mask it? Let's make it as dirty and distorted. Like all great music, at the essence, great melodies. Yep. And you know, and it brings and it brings us back to somebody like Zeppelin. And I always like to think about this. What what is the ingredients? What's the secret sauce here for these? iconic innovative bands and i and my and my my take on it is this you have a, a band of high level musicians to start with and in zeppelin's case everybody okay. is just virtuoso level player before we even start right and then we have a passion for a style and sure. it's not even like let's say rock and roll it's the blues in their case yeah. they're mm-hmm. all steeped in the blues and then we have the interest in, in, in bringing other styles into play. At last the sun is shining, the clouds are blue all wide. With flames from the dragon of darkness, the sunlight climbs his It might be a conscious effort. It might just be an unconscious thing, a subconscious thing, where where someone's listening to some, some folk music and not really even sharing it with the others, right? But we're bringing that in. And then the third ingredient is great songwriting. So I think if you have those three things, you can you can cook with those ingredients and get a new a new flavor. It's become a cooking episode here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Chef Rob Brosh is our guest. We're cooking in the rock and roll kitchen. I mean, what's your take on that? I mean, like bands just like what's what's the secret to the innovation? Like that's to me, that's always the intriguing question. Yeah. What do you I guys think, think it has something to do with not really caring what anybody else thinks or feels and doing your thing that's your way to the maximum. That that thought applies across the board pretty much if you're if you're doing music. Just be you. Yeah. Who else are you going to be? I also think that there's got to be a certain level of chemistry amongst the band members as well, because you can have great songwriting, you can have virtuoso musicianship, but if they're not digging playing together, it may not sound at the level it could. Yeah, let's talk chemistry. So Gerard Street, London, basement of a record store, first time the four members of Zeppelin physically meet to play. Never knew that. So they're sitting there, and and the question comes up, what are we going to play? And so one of them, I think it was Paige, says, well, you know, Train kept a rolling. You know, rockabilly tune, man. Since covered by Aerosmith and everybody else. Mm -hmm. And they launched into that, and then they they couldn't even finish the tune because they just looked at each other, and they're like, holy shit, this is special. So that's instant chemistry. That's just like right out of the gate, we, this is special. To me, the chemistry really is the night-to-night fearlessness, the ability to just take risks like you're a jazz ensemble. Don't care if you make mistakes, and we're going to explore this tune 
every night and it's going to be different. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the their, essence of jazz, man. Mm-hmm. I love that. The essence of jazz. So that's why Days to Confuse goes from eight minutes to, to, to 28. <laughs> you know, that's, that's why so Paige's self-indulgent solos. Yeah, they're, they're self-indulgent. They go along with the, the sequin suits and all that. But at the same time, he is exploring every night. Bonzo's drum solo went, Moby Dick went from 10 minutes to 30 minutes. Because he's got that much more to say as it evolves. It's not pretentious. It's just like, this is what I need to do to express what I'm doing. And hey, by the way, we're not going to have any opening acts. There's no room. You know what I mean? Same as the dead, but for a different reason. For a different reason. But but I saw the dead with Santana opening up for him in the early 90s. So that might have been been the outdoor festival, right? It was just at Mile High Stadium. Oh, yeah, definitely. In that kind of a setting, you might see an opening. Jerry's probably not in great shape, so we need a little help. <laughs> but, if, but if you saw him now with Mayer, you know, the the Dead and Company, what they their standard procedure is they do about an hour. They take about a 45-minute break, and they come back and do about an hour and a half. Nice. So they, 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 they're still hitting it pretty hard. Good. Yeah, but Zeppelin shows just grew to these, like, three-and-a-half, four-hour things. Marathons, yeah. Yeah. Well, with all those long musical solos, it sounds like they would get carried away in that way. But now you had said something earlier and we've been talking about their live shows and the solos and the that they have a lot to say. You said that they were all virtuosos. Is there a member that would be the most talented and most gifted of these four? I'm going to say no. And Jimmy Page has talked about this and he has said that we're like pretty much equal partners, even though in the beginning they weren't, it was the Jimmy Page show from the, from the get go. I mean, I mean, plant wasn't writing lyrics yet or very much. And Page had everything figured out. And that led to like the most incredible, here we go again, the Led Zeppelin one done in 36 hours. That's just extraordinary. I mean, you got Glenn Johns at the helm. So you're, you know, you're not going to screw around with, a, a lot of um, inexperienced people in the studio, but Paige knew exactly how to record Bonham, who was a problem to record because he was kicked out of a lot of recording studios. <laughs> He's yeah. the reason why they developed the whole baffling system for drummers in yeah. recording studios. Not, they- only are the, not only are the meters in red, we got to invent a new color, like hotter I- than red. But Paige figured it out, and part of it was Paige's like mic placement thing, his whole ambient sound. He knew what he was doing, man. What is it? Depth equals distance, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. So there, he's able to tame the wild beats. And, and get <laughs> as that. much as anybody could, man, I tell you, and capture it at the same time, which is doubly difficult. Well, but Marcus, if you're going to go through like a, like, like okay, we got to eliminate these guys till we get to the clear, most talented guy. Um, I, I can't do it because, hey, one of my old jazz teachers, Adam Nussbaum, who's extremely um, astute about all musics. And he said, you know, his favorite is John Paul Jones. It's not just that he's like this utility infielder that can do 12 different things. Of course he can play great bass lines, add these keyboard parts, uh, arrange, orchestrate. Hey, he breaks out the recorder for the beginning of Stairway. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Make it sound like a medieval kind of approach to, to the sound. The musicianship is just extraordinary from him. And then we all know what Bonzo's all about. Mm-hmm. Plant took a little more time to mature. And and at first, the, the story I love is that when 
when when John Paul Jones is 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 definitely in with Paige and Peter Grant's already there as as the manager. All right, now we're looking for the singer. So they're they're looking for people. They find this guy Terry Reed, but he's committed. He doesn't want to take this risky band. In fact, he says, "Oh, the Yardbirds are kind of done. I don't like." I mean, he's associating Paige with the Yardbirds. That's done. So he's so so Plant's not even the first choice. So they they go out and they hear him and they're intrigued, but there's something a little bit weird about him, you know, I, I, the voice, the mannerisms, and everything like that. So Paige is whatever are you talking about, man? I have no idea. I'm not sure about this guy, but the sexually charged energy, man, that part of it was evident right out of the gate. It took Plant a while to develop as a lyricist. So so by Zeppelin, I would say by Zeppelin three. The record that gets destroyed by the, the the critics that say it's too acoustic, which is nonsense because first of all you have immigrant song to lead the record off, which is maybe the, the hardest hitting song of all, mm-hmm. and then you can go back to Zeppelin one and two and hear plenty of acoustic and other influences as well. But the critics didn't know what it was, so it was just easy to just be negative about it. You hit it right on the head there, Dr. Rob. Also, it's an immigrant song. My favorite on that side, other than Out on the Tiles, is the solo on Since I've Been Loving You. Where Paige is all frustrated with the equipment and he's kicking amps around and finally finds (laughs) his beat up old piece of shit amp and gets that tone out of it on side one. But on side two, you've got Gallows Pole and Tangerine, and that's the way. Sweet songs, right? Right. Hey, i, I got to ask you guys a question. How, how many times have you heard people criticize Paige as being sloppy? Oh, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard it's that. It's the easy go-to, yes. right, Marcus? Absolutely. Like- that's why I asked when you had seen them in our previous conversation if they were on or off that night, because the things that I have read about Led Zeppelin was that they were either really on or really sloppy and off. That's really true. That's really true. When I was putting these video ants together that I'm going to talk about in a minute, that is very evident that they're going to have good nights and bad nights, especially later in their career when, unfortunately, drugs um, are really taking their toll. And by the way, I try to keep the the sex and drugs out of it for the most part. But when it affects the music, when we're when we're going in the studio to do in through the outdoor and Paige is, is, is just not functional at all, nor Bonham, um, you know, Jones and Plan have to step up to write the music and produce this thing. It is now without further ado that we bring to you the man who played tambourine on Battle of Evermore. The man who keeps Budweiser going strong. John Henry Bonham, over the top, top, But yet, like very much they're inconsistent from night to night. And uh, fortunately, when I saw them, they were definitely on that night. I mean, so there's a difference. Is it is it a, is it a uh, is it a drunken sloppiness, or is it just like, hey, I'm not going to be that technically. I'm not trying to be Inve Malstein. That's not my thing. But why? Because I'm more about the feel. For me, of all the British guitar players that were raised in the blues, from Clapton to Keith Richards to Brian Jones. To me, Paige hits me the hardest right here for me. And that's, again, that's... Oh, you're not alone, Dr. Rob. I, I agree. I am a Led Zeppelin kinks guy over a Stones Beatles guy. And I love the Stones and I love the Beatles. Hey. But I am more of a Led Zeppelin kinks guy. I like the way those bands just pummeled you and sent a message in a different way. 
Yeah, so we need to line up every one of those people that say they're he's sloppy and just punch them. Nah. Like they don't get it, you know. They but they they deserve a chance to learn, like to get it, to see what it really is. That's not his emphasis, man. Before we, before we talk about the video amp thing with the courses, I just want to mention like one tune I was thinking about the other day. What tunes like coalesce Zeppelin into one? And for a lot of people, it might be you know the obvious Stairway or Cashmere or something like that. But I was listening to the Rain Song off of Houses of the Holy. It is the springtime of my love. The second season I am blowing. You are the sunlight in my growing. So little warmth I've felt before. It isn't hard to feel me glow I watched the fire that grew so low And when you listen to that, when you guys get a chance, go back and listen to that song. I'm listening to it in my head right now. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, just the, the vibe of it when it starts is just, right away, it just kind of puts you in this place. But you've got John Paul Jones all over that with the orchestration, the arrangement, the keyboard sounds. So right out of the gate, Plant cites that as his favorite vocal performance he's ever done in the studio on a Zeppelin record. And and you can hear why. And so even though Bonham is playing with brushes, he still is able to attack and play with a lot of force, even with brushes. But it just shows you that he's just not an animal, man. He's playing for the music. And that song, man, when you hear it, it goes through this journey and it just has so many Zeppelin-isms in there that that could define the band for me. We're on the Imbalance History Podcast. Ray and Marcus talking with Dr. Rob Brosh from Temple University. And he does a lot of neat stuff. He's talking about the courses that he teaches and how he got there. But I want to talk to you about something that you mentioned briefly, uh, this thing called the Video Ant. Tell us what it is, because most people aren't going to know what it is, and how people can find out about it. First of all, some of my Temple students, if they hear this, they're going to be laughing. It's like, oh, he's talking about the Video Ant again. Stop. But one of my colleagues at Temple, she showed me a number of of, um, really great online um, web design type of of features that she was using. And this is something that um, is is widely used at Temple. It's the program that anybody could sign up for. It's the University of Minnesota has a free program. So you go there, just go to videoant.com or .net or whatever it is. It's powered by the University of Minnesota. You sign up for a free account. Yeah, and so what you do is you, you then go on YouTube and you scour YouTube like I did, watching like dozens and dozens of Zeppelin videos. And here we go. So if I'm looking for Black Dog, I find five Black Dogs, right? I, and I watch them all. And I find the one that I think, yeah, that's they're on that night. There's something really special going on here. Mm. So you take the URL from that from that video and you cut and paste it into Video Ant. And now you have the video up, but you have these features where if you play the video and you and you stop it, the timestamp might be a minute in and you might say, OK, that's the first verse where Robert Plant enters. You give a description on the right side of the screen. And then underneath of it, oh, I'm sorry, you give it a title, could be first verse. And underneath of it, you would you would describe and say, okay, Robert Plant enters here, 
uh, Bonham and, and Jones are playing this kind of groove and Page is doing this. Wow. So when the video plays, when it comes to that timestamp, the, the right side of the screen lights up and comes at you a little bit, like a little mm-hmm. bit of motion effect. And so now somebody can watch an analysis, a musical analysis of a video in real time, rather than saying, hey, read this two page analysis and watch the video or vice versa. Wow, it's kind of like pop-up wow. video from VH1 in the old days, right? Yeah. The thing you got to remind cool. yourself is you just can't write too much because you don't want them, you know, reading two paragraphs right now. <laughs> got so much stuff to say. So maybe at the beginning I would say, oh, this is from Nebworth, and then boom, you're off to the races. It's video, Ant. Google that and then look for the connection to the uh, university. Anybody can use it, man, like just for fun. Woo. You're taking or you're taking a course and you just want to, you know, you're doing a, 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 a PowerPoint presentation, can sneak that in there and stuff. So I have them all over my courses. Cool. Obviously, I use in the Zeppelin course, it's four weeks long. So there's two video ants per week. I also have slideshows there where it's a typical slideshow. But as soon as you click on a new slide, that song plays automatically. Ah, and that's cool. so now you're reading. If you don't want to read the narrative, the whole like reading lesson, you can kind of do it in bullet points on the slides. Marcus, I think we're going to have a picnic. Yes, we are. And we're going to have a lot of video ads at the picnic. And when we get off the air, I'm, I'm enrolling you guys in the course so you can check okay. it out. Uh-oh. And just see it for yourself. And, All right. Yeah. We're going back to school, Challenge Marcus. accepted. Shakespeare for everybody. All right, my Woo! tuition check. Oh, team hurts. What's nice, what's nice about it, too, is like you can comment back and forth. Like There's a, also another little tool called a Padlet forum, which is just basically like a message wall. Oh, cool. So for an online course, it's like the equivalent of raising your hand mm. if you're in class. And you just, there's you know, so I'll pose a question. The question could be, you know, why did the music critics hate Led Zeppelin so much? And then so you make a response and then I can respond to your response or put my own thing up there. And that's a nice way to get dialogue going between the class. That's one of the questions of all time, I think, is Mm -hmm. uh, about the critics. I think people want to, you know, dive into that and learn about that kind of stuff Mm because it's not that easy to find the answers. No, it isn't. It all starts with like, okay, 36 hours. Here is the completed. Doesn't even have to be mastered. We already did that. Here's the completed debut album on a platter. They sign a big deal, but in the fine print, and maybe mentioned casually to Ahmed Erdogan, it's like, oh, by the way, we have full control. And full control means full control, like artwork, touring, yeah. like, oh, did you did you hear we don't want to release singles? No. And, and God forbid you take Days of Confuse and chop out the middle section. So it, So it's literally us against them mentality and so how are we going to develop this band oh we know what we have each tour we're going to like triple the size of our fan base so i know this little trivia fact in 1969 first year really when when, when the debut came out and, and and at the end of the year zeppelin 2 they toured they toured the u.s they played 139 dates in the u.s alone in 69 by the time you get to 70 they're the biggest band in the world but they did it that way. You know, wow. we talked about in one of our episodes about how many things they changed and uh, the aspects on concerts. All you have to do is look at those uh, photos from Kezar Stadium in San Francisco area yeah. in that early days in the 70s, 71 era and see like, wow, nobody in the world could do that at yeah. that point. Yeah. 
So much fun talking to you. We learn stuff yeah. every day. And uh, having I'm the learned. rock and roll professor on, you know, the rock and roll doctor in the house, it really it does help uh, us to learn even more. And I got a feeling that we're going to learn some things together moving forward, Dr. Brush. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, we are. Beautiful partnership. <laughs> Be a lot of fun. Well, I'm going to just give them some information about stuff, and then we'll uh, kind of do a summation and wrap up. Okay. Listen, if you guys want to reach out to Dr. Rob, all you got to do is send us an email at imbalancehistory at gmail.com, or you can email him. It's rbrosh at comcast.net. It's r-b-r-o-s-h at comcast.net. And again, you can go to the Rock Doc Music Courses site. You can subscribe to my newsletter, which is free. Um, Again, this month it's Tom Petty. And actually, he's got a great quote I got to tell you guys a little bit about. And my YouTube channels of the same name, Rock Doc Music Courses. And you can subscribe. He's everywhere, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it's like a social media blitz. Anyway, Tom Petty has, I don't know what the quote is verbatim, but it's something to the effect of like, hey, um, the problem I have with new music today is I just don't hear great songwriting as much as I heard in the 70s and 80s. And maybe it's because it's hard work. Guys just don't want to put the work in to mm. write songs because everyone's not going to be a gem. Hey, I know you've been checking out episodes of the podcast, Dr. Yeah. Rob. Make sure you go back and find the one where we talked to John Scott. I know if you love Tom Petty, you're going to love that episode. He's the guy who wrote the book, Tom Petty and Me. Oh, and wow. worked yeah, with yeah. Tom, and he was the one who told Tom Petty, like, hey, throw me out of your dressing room. But I'm going to break your career wide open. You know? He's a great guy, and you'll love that one. He's uh, also oh, I can't so- wait. It is just so nice to have you with us and talking about this stuff. I always want to spread the word about education, music education, on any level in any direction. And you've spent your whole life doing it. You and Kerber, man, you're the two of the guys I know oh, your man. whole life doing this. I'm going into my 31st year of teaching uh, academically, man. It's just like it's they should shut me down. And you have gray hairs for every year yeah. to prove it. And I'll tell you what. And, and but we still have our hair. At least we have that, right? Rob? And I'm looking forward to having you guys guest blogging as well. Oh, yeah. You know, we would love to. Topic, come on and do that because, like, you guys have so much to offer. It's it's, it's criminal. And then I'll I'll have, uh, I'll have you it guys. It is actually in some states, Rob. <laughs> you didn't know. There are some states we just aren't allowed to visit. <laughs> Podcast gets in there, but we're not allowed to go. You'll be video anting, I'm sure. Call it video I, I'm video anting as we speak. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I just did three while we're talking. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Beautiful. Dr. Rob Rosh from Pipple University, our guest. It's another fun episode of the podcast. When we get together, anything can and will happen. Uh, reach out to us through our email, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com, through the social medias, and just keep listening. Right, buddy? You got it. Keep listening. New episodes every single week. Thanks to Dr. Rob Brosh for joining us. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. And um, check out the podcast because these guys just have a world of wisdom here, man. So uh, thanks so much. You get the 20 I get slipped in. <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode. A lot of fun. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 